This episode is brought to you by Voyager. Stay tuned for more information about them later in the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Often on my show, I'll have someone who is an expert on a particular project, company, or sector. Today, I have the rare opportunity to speak to one of the world's most profound and lasting voices on technological revolutions and their impact on the world. Known for authoring more books, frankly, than I can remember, coining popular terms taught in high-level academia, researching cutting-edge technology, and more, Don Tapscott is a living legend. It's my hope today to have him share his thoughts on the bigger picture for the crypto revolution and where it fits into the macro-global economic picture. Don Tapscott, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. That was too kind in the introduction. <laughs> I'd like to, you know, butter you up in advance so that it'll, it just, it'll be a positive conversation. <laughs> Once again, this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing media company in the digital asset space. You can check them out at blockworks.co and find everything uh, Scott Melker at the Wolf of All Streets.io. Now to get into today's episode. So we've heard constant comparisons of late of the crypto market to the dot-com bubble. What do you think of that assessment? Well, um, part of it is valid and part of it is not. Um, the part that's valid is the analogy with the first era of the internet is a good one. Because for 40 years, and I'm dating myself here, I, I'll go back to the 1970s at Canada's Bell Labs. Um, where we were doing research on how multifunction workstations connected to a vast network of network might change the nature of managerial work and business models. And, um, and uh, I wrote a couple of books on that in the 1980s that nobody read. My mother bought most of the copies. I think. <laughs> but, um, but for 40 years, we've had this internet of information. And, uh, you know, as I said uh, in my TED talk, uh, um, that's, it's about information. If I send you some information, you know, an email, a photo, whatever, I'm actually sending you a copy. I keep the original. Even with a website, I, I retain the original. Where uh, when it comes to assets, things like money <laughs> or securities or intellectual property, the data in our identities, art, um, uh, music, cultural assets, votes, votes and assets, something of value that belongs to somebody, copying those is not a good idea. So you don't want someone copying your vote or your identity. And if I send you a thousand dollars, it's really important that I don't still have the money, right? So cryptographers have called this a double spend problem for decades. And that's what Satoshi did. He cracked the double spend problem. So for, for the, the first time ever, people could exchange, transact, manage, store assets peer to peer. And trust is not achieved by a middleman as it is with the internet of information and all other financial transactions. It's achieved by cryptography, collaboration, and you know, some clever code. So to, to your question, the analogy with the first internet is not terrible because that was the internet of information. Now we're getting an internet of value. And during the early stages of something as big as either of those, there's going to be all kinds of speculation. It's like I used to say, this is like the Wild West, 1995. You know, it's a place of reckless and calamity and chaos. And and um, and sure, the, all the dot coms uh, 
um, you know, got created and they had all kinds of great value and then they crashed. But there's some interesting stuff about that. First of all, most of the dot coms, that idea is now back. I remember George Shaheen quit uh, Accenture and got $200 million to invest in buying a big warehouse for the distribution of stuff. And it was going to start with, with um, I think, with pets and food and stuff like that. The timing just wasn't right. Now the company that does that is the most valuable company in the world. So um, they weren't terrible ideas. They were just ideas whose time had not yet come. So um, on the other hand, the internet of information, it's very, diff uh, very different. Like a, that, you know, the whole fat protocols idea that you're not just investing in the application like Amazon or, or, or pets.com or whatever that goes on top of the web. The internet of information was in the public domain. Thank you, Vince. Thank you, Tim Berners-Lee, and so on. This internet of value is owned by investors. So this is quite an extraordinary um, opportunity if you think about it. Like, what's the internet of information worth? Five trillion, 50 trillion, it's, it's a big number. The internet of value, if that's even a bigger number, is worth a lot. So what we're seeing right now is, is just the tip of the iceberg. Now it doesn't mean that they're all kind of, that there isn't all kinds of crazy stuff that's being created and that people are investing in, but overall the arc of this thing is to grow and to get bigger. There's a lot of volatility, but the arc is a positive one. I mean, isn't the idea of the bubble that there's excitement and innovation that entrepreneurs flood into the space and just naturally a large percentage of those are going to fail? companies are otherwise. So of course there's the price bubble, but if you have thousands of people innovating, you're going to get the Google and the Amazon and the Facebooks that you talked about, but most companies are going to fail. Isn't that a positive, a sign of this innovation? Yeah. It's not only most companies charging into a new innovation space that fail. It's most companies. Right. I don't know what the exact number is, but 90% of all new companies fail, you know? So and to compare it to tulips or something like that is really kind of vacuous, really. And it's really, uh, to me, it, it's sort of uh, uh, missing the point. You know, and, and as for the volatility, well, people call it a roller coaster. I don't think that's a good analogy. Roller coaster goes up and down, but then it starts back at the bottom, or it ends at the bottom. Um, whereas this thing, it's, it's volatile, but it, it does have a trajectory and it's not gonna go back to where it started. So you spoke about the internet of value. Can you dig a bit deeper into what that means conceptually and what the trajectory of that is when we reach the full potential of that concept? Well, imagine an operating system for the economy where people can trust each other, do transactions and manage, communicate, exchange assets peer to peer. What does that do for the deep structure and architecture of our economy and for the firm itself? So we have a little bit of time here, so I'll just give you a little economics on the firm. Um, and when I wrote The Digital Economy in 1995, I was trying to come up with an economic theory to describe where this whole thing, how the internet was gonna change the firm. And I came across this guy, Ronald Coase, who was a Nobel Prize winning economist. 
And you know, 80 years ago, he wrote a paper where he asked a deceptively simple question. He said, why does the firm exist? If Adam Smith is right, and the open market's the best mechanism for allocating goods, resources, and materials, and information in the economy, then why isn't everybody an independent contractor at every step along the way in production? And he said, the answer is, and he won a Nobel Prize for saying this, the answer is transaction costs. And he had these different classes of transaction costs. But the idea was that the cost of doing transactions inside the firm were greater than outside. So we bring all this stuff into the firm. The cost of search, trying to find all the right people to do something. Imagine you want to create a, a widget, you know, or a, something, and you got to go find all the people to do that. You got to find the money to do that. You got to find the knowledge and the information and the production capabilities and so on. Be prohibited. The cost of search, the cost of, of information. That was another one. You know, the cost of organizing. So if you want to do something out in an open market, there's a big organizational challenge. Inside the boundaries of the firm, you have people, you have org charts, you have structures, you have compensation systems, you have business processes. Those costs reduce things quite significantly. And overall, he talked about the cost of creating trust. So along comes the Internet of Information. And... By the, by the way, the vertically integrated firm was the, the foundational firm of the industrial age. Henry Ford had within the boundaries of the firm, a power plant, steel mill, glass factory, um, a shipping company. He had mahogany forests in Honduras to get the wood for the dashboard. Why? Because the cost of transactions in an open market were greater than the cost of doing things inside the board. So along comes the internet and that starts to drop these transaction costs. You get a company like Cisco back in the day and the mantra then was focus on what you do best and partner to do the rest. That was our little poem. It wasn't exactly Longfellow, but, um, but, but Cisco created a business web or business ecosystem as we called it back then where, where it had its core capabilities and then it would partner. And it could do that because of the internet. Well, now you have an internet of value. Imagine how that completely demolishes these transaction costs and the cost of establishing trust. You know, so that the, the cost of transactions, you know, the cost of search, we're gonna be able to search for, for assets, the cost of coordination, blockchain radically uh, drops all of that. So you can start to see a more decentralized model of wealth creation starting to appear. And there, there's already all kinds of evidence of that. So that's the firm. And then when it comes to the economy, it's a very similar thing because right now in the industrial age, we have all these, these corporations, but they play a certain role in, in a supply chain. And you have uh, you know, all these different business partners. You have trains and boats and planes and trucks and and EDI and, and uh, ERP systems managing this and people are phoning each other and sending faxes and emails and, and paper. Um, <laughs> one of our friends at, uh, at FedEx, the client says, uh, asked me one day, do you know how you know what's in a railway car? You go inside it and you look up to the right and there's a little box on the wall that has a piece of paper and it's saying what's in the car. And imagine you replace all of that with a shared network state, an asset chain, where you have real-time transactions, where, where, 
where <laughs> there's a single version of the truth. We can have smart contracts, so you can have smart payments. You can have micro payments. Um, so th th this is going to radically change the whole structure of how industry and the creation of products and, and goods and services uh, occurs. So I'll just, I could go on about this, but I'll just give you one example. So in the digital economy, 94, 95, it came out. Um, I said, there's this thing called disintermediation. I, I made a joke. If you're in the middle, if you have a name, lawyer, distributor, um, uh, inter intermediary, uh, seller, um, and I rattled off a whole bunch of Broker. time to do career, <laughs> huh? Broker. Broker. <laughs> <laughs> time to do some career planning. I joked about that. But then I said, let's take an industry. And I, I picked the book industry. So I said, um, bookstores are in the middle between publishers and readers. So they're going to get disintermediated. But then I came up with this idea called re-intermediation. I said, I'll bet the opportunity to create new value in the middle is bigger than the old middle. Only the corollary to that law, no one's ever called it Don's law, but uh, the corollary to that law is that um, the leaders of the old middle are typically not the ones to create the new middle. Correct. So I said, but what could happen is in between a publisher and a bookstore, you could have something new that uses networks that could be bigger than the bookstore. Well, again, that is now the most valuable company in the world. One of them. Sure. So re-intermediation, this is not just a, a, you know, a big threat and a big danger to, to the old um, intermediaries. It's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity, but as you said, it, they're going to be replaced by superior systems and people who understand better. Um, so what happens in this decentralized future uh, to all of the toll collectors, third parties, and brokers that are in the middle, because those are arguably the biggest systems in place and the ones that probably, um, you know, larger players have the firmest grasp upon. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the problem of paradigms. And I'm allowed to use that word, okay, because in 93, I wrote paradigms. It's your word. <laughs> well, I didn't invent the word, but I was paradigm the first shift. to apply yes. the idea beyond science to to um, other things, I guess. But um, I said that that when you have a new paradigm, that's what's happening here. Um, these things uh, are received with coolness, or worse, hostility, mockery. Um, they cause dislocation, disruption, confusion, and vested interests, those, those uh, in the old paradigm, are often the last to embrace the new. And throughout history, there have been examples of this. You know, um, Galileo came along and said to the church, the world is not flat and we're not at the center of the universe. We're a planet. We rotate around the sun. So he had a, a tough life uh, trying to, uh, actually, Galileo, here's a quiz. Guess what year he was exonerated? Uh, thousands of years later, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I, I don't know the exact year. I think it was like yeah. 20 years ago so. yeah. um, and the leaders of Newtonian physics fought against Einstein's general theory of relativity you know so um, this is it who are the computer who are the big IT technology companies today we've gone through a bunch of shifts there were the mainframe companies 
the IBM and the bunch, Burroughs, Univac, NCR, Control Data, and Honeywell. Gone. Gone. Um, then there were the mini computer companies. So I could rattle off a dozen of those. Wang, Portface, Data General, Fourpoint. Data General is the hottest company in the world. Oh, Digital Equipment Corporation was the largest computer company in the world for a brief moment in time. And then Ken Olson famously said, why would anyone want to have a computer in their office? He's a CEO. Um, and then we had the PC. Where are all the PC companies? The IBM PC, that was a big one. There is no IBM PC uh, today. So, you know, the, the, this, this problem of leaders of old having great difficulty embracing the new. So think about these financial companies who were like the masters of the universe. They're the greatest extractors of value. Their executives are the richest. Uh, pretty much, unless you're an entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos and you create your own thing, they're pretty much the, the richest uh, uh, pe people in the world. Um, <laughs> you're the wolf of whatever. So um, <laughs> I've been called know. worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you know Wall Street. This is like a it's it's an art art thing. Imagine them trying to completely change their business model to give up control, to move to a more decentralized model and to discover new business models. Now, some are doing it, they're showing. I mean, JP Morgan is, uh, is doing some pretty interesting stuff. You look at Fidelity with their digital assets group. They get a guy in there, Tom Jessup, who really gets this and mm -hmm. Fidelity, that's a big growing operation. So there can be exceptions to the rule. Right, so I think it's clear that we, uh agree that blockchain technology is certainly the future and is going to be the underlying tech of um, quite a bit of innovation moving forward and the systems that will become probably familiar and underlying almost everything. Where do Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically fit into that as assets? Well, I think of Bitcoin as the first app of the internet of value. There was a first app for the internet of information can you guess or remember? I do not know. Mm -mm. I was using it in 1977 for Bell Brother Research. It was called email. There you go. And it's still around. Bitcoin will still be around. Um, it's an, it, it does have use cases. It's a medium of exchange. It's a store of value that has a real role right now in this global economy. Gold is becoming less important all the time. Um, but Ethereum is, is quite different to me. I view that, if you want an analogy with the internet and information, it's more like the web in the sense that you can build any app on Ethereum. And so there, there'll be a whole, there is a whole ecosystem that's growing from that. It's not just Ethereum, but there are other really interesting platforms that have Funny. this kind of uh, capability too. So they're very different to me. There's a role for both of them. And they're the, they're, they're the two, obviously, the two dominant ones right now. Now, people talked about the flippening back in the day. I, when, uh, I, I was, we're hearing about it again. That was my next question. Do you, <laughs> the flippening has returned, which uh, was a top signal last time, to be quite frank, for Ethereum. But do you see a world where Ethereum flips it in market cap, but even more importantly, that it flips it in importance? I, I think that that's possible because compare email to the web. You know, we all use email, it's great. People use Bitcoin, it's great. 
But the web, when you start rebuilding the firm, rebuilding our institutions, rebuilding our economy on a new platform, that gets really interesting. Will it be Ethereum? Well, so far Ethereum looks pretty good, um, but that can change really quickly too. Will it be MySpace with the internet of information? Right, I mean, right. is, is Ethereum Netscape and something that's coming in the future is Google. Yeah, I'll tell you, because uh, this is a free form thing. I'll tell you something I've, ne something I've never said publicly, but- um, Please. So um, when we wrote Wikinomics, um, which by the way, ended up being a big book. It was the, not just the number one technology book, it was the number one management book in the whole year on amazon.com, beat out the black swan by an inch in, in 2000 or 2007. And uh, <laughs> for the Financial Times, Goldman Sachs Best Business Book Award, I sat beside the, the, the author of the black swan and we were both convinced that the other person was gonna win it. And then they gave it away to some book about investment banking because <laughs> those are two big books anyway so i show up at at the world economic forum in davos one year and, and people keep saying mark zuckerberg's looking for you he wants to talk to you and uh, my secretary says facebook's calling mark zuckerberg wants to meet me and um you know we talked about um, facebook in in the book and i think like, okay fine i'll meet mark zuckerberg so we went and met and he brought along one of the other Facebook founders. And, and the first thing that happened was he says to me, um, would you sign our books? And I'm, I'm like, okay, I wrote a book. He created a social network with 30 million people on it. Um, and he, he's impressed by me. <laughs> so what's wrong with this picture? But anyway, sending that aside, um, you know, we had a, a, a conversation about where should Facebook go? But one of the requests that he had was on the cover of the first edition, we had MySpace, not Facebook. So to the point today about Ethereum, you know, Ethereum is everywhere in blockchain revolution because it was and continues to be hands down the leading platform for building the new firm and the new enterprise. But there's nothing guaranteed that it will continue to play that role. And you can have some interesting new players come in orthogonally and diagonally that, that, that can do things that Ethereum can't do that can be quite disruptive. If you've been paying any attention to me or have been following me for any length of time, then you know I absolutely love Voyager. Every single time someone tweets me or asks me, hey, Scott, where do you trade and invest? The answer is always Voyager. They offer over 50 assets to trade commission-free. I save so much money, it almost feels too good to be true. And that's not even my favorite part of Voyager. My favorite part is the insane interest that I earn. Up to 10% on my USDC, 6.25% on my Bitcoin, and 5.25% on my Ethereum. Whether I'm trading or not, I'm earning interest on what's sitting on the platform. Making money literally couldn't be easier and there are no lockups or limits go to the wolf of all streets dot link slash voyager that's v-o-y-a-g-e-r and download the voyager app and use code scott25 to get 25 dollars in free bitcoin when you create your account what are you waiting for go download voyager is blockchain the most disruptive technology that you've ever seen yes uh, it's also the one with the most confusion that i've ever seen why do you think that is because you're messing with value, with money, securities, 
the commanding heights of the economy, you know, with the, the institutions that run our world. You know, the internet didn't really mess with that. It enabled new businesses, new uh, opportunity to change the way lots of things happen. It enables me to communicate with my grandchildren every day um, on video. But now we're talking about changing the way the economy works. And that's, uh, so you're gonna get, you know, there were detractors in the age of the internet. I remember 94, I would show someone the web on a mosaic and um, this uh, before Netscape came out and it would be um, on the screen, you know, at 9,600 bits per second. I remember. And people would look at me and they would like, Don, are you crazy? That is never going to be anything. And I, I'm like, no, actually, the march of technology is inexorable. It's going to be really fast. You're going to be able to interact with people and see them on the screen, have video and download movies and do all kinds of other stuff, which all happen. And the, the funny analogy to today, of course, is about blockchain, is that people look at a wallet and they're like, oh, God, nobody's ever going to learn how to do some weird arcane thing like this. And maybe you put your money on a on an exchange and it goes under and look at all the criminals that use this stuff, which was one back then, by the way, the internet the information. It's full of course. porn and porn. criminals. And, <laughs> you know, criminals are always the first ones to use exciting new technology. Yep. <laughs> and, Mark Yusko said the exact same thing to me. I don't know if you know him, but he said that he spent his entire career on the fringe dealing with all the criminals because he invested in the internet early and he was ahead yeah. of the blockchain and it was porn for the internet and it was, you know, uh, criminals and drug dealers for Bitcoin. Well, but the real smart law enforcement people understand that something like Bitcoin is the best thing that ever happened. Oh, it's trace it's not private. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, our, we can have a private transaction, but there's metadata. You don't get that with cash. And and 3% three, 3% of, of cash is probably criminal activity. That was our estimate. Maybe up to 1% of Bitcoin. And if you're using Bitcoin for illicit purposes, not a good idea. So what do you see for the next 10 years of blockchain? What kind of developments do you see? And do you think that we're really in the infancy of this? Or do you think that we've actually entered a serious phase of development? I don't know if this is, if this is a baseball game. Um, we're in the first inning. Have we, had, we probably had the first battle. Um, I think uh, Alex Stapscott, I watched him, was asked that question. He said, I, I, I think we've had the first uh, uh, three outs and we're now into the second um, part of the first inning. But anyway, it, first. It, yep. yeah, but we're kind of, a, we're, we're still pretty early stage. Um, where's it going to go? Um, well, first of all, I'm not a futurist. In fact, <laughs> yeah, I always find myself saying the future is not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. But what, what we like to talk about here at the Blockchain Research Institute, by the way, I'd welcome uh, anybody from a big company or, or a startup, we have good pricing for them too, to to um, check us out at blockchainresearchinstitute.org or .com. And, um, you know, what we're outlining is where we think this could go if we find the will to do it. Um. Do you think that that's the case both for the technology and the price of these assets? 
do you think that Bitcoin is so early in the cycle that we're literally in the first inning? Um, no, I wouldn't say that because a lot of things can happen between the assets that change their relative importance. But like email didn't go away. I don't think Bitcoin will go away. That's fair. And, um, and I think that overall, this gets bigger, like way bigger. And uh, it's still not very big right now. What the entire crypto world is, the, it's a- uh, Two trillion market cap, yeah, it's small. So it's not even the price of Apple. Mm -mm. Apple's almost three trillion of a single company. So um, mind you, Apple's a really big company <laughs> in terms of its value. Uh, digital conglomerates, 2006, we wrote a paper. I'm glad I get to say this on this podcast because uh, this is a great word. People should use this word. We said in 2006, we wrote a paper saying there's a new species of business emerging. So we're gonna call it a digital conglomerate. We use um, you know, Apple and, and Amazon and some, uh, uh, Facebook and others. No, it wasn't Facebook. Um, it would have been some others, but, and, and we said they're, they're unlike anything we've ever seen before because of their control and access to data, the asset class of the digital age, they can rapidly expand into adjacent or, or not so adjacent industries. I remember one of the, um, the Facebook founders, Larry, um, said once at a session that um, I was at, he said, we'd like it better if it's not an adjacent industry. <laughs> we just got, a, got this data and we go there and build a whole new industry and wipe out everybody who's there. He didn't say that part, but that's, <laughs> that's of course what they do. So um, now th this of course is a huge issue for all of us personally. This is one of our biggest passions at the Blockchain Research Institute. One of mine personally, I've been writing about it a lot, but it means that you know, we create this data. Um, the virtual Scott knows more about you than you do. All kinds of areas. You, you can't remember what you bought a year ago or said a year ago or what transaction you had, what medication, what, what uh, diagnosis you had, what, what you got on that test, what, you know, dozens of classes of data. You create it and these digital conglomerates exploit it. And I don't think it's, I like using analogies to help people understand stuff. I don't think it's, dream to call this kind of like a digital feudalism because under feudalism you had the landlords you created all the value they owned the land and then you had to give it all to them but you got to keep a bit well scott you create all this value and you're left with a few digital cabbages right. and um people say well that's a big problem for privacy yeah but that's just the beginning first of yeah, all you can't use all problem. this data to plan your life you can't monetize the data. Jared Lanier said of the last Davos that there are probably a billion and a half people in the world who could double their income if they could monetize their data. All the data is insecure because it's on central servers. You know, there's two types of these, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. And, you know, JP Morgan, Home Depot, you name it, just ask them. It means that in, say, a pandemic, all this data is locked in silos, so you can't aggregate it together. Imagine our health data. A lot of it's real time, you know? Our, yeah. our, our temperature, our, our, our blood pressure, our heart rate, our, you know, all kinds of stuff that would be amazing if we could anonymize and aggregate that across these, across platforms. 
And yes, our privacy is being undermined. And people say to me, well, Don, you know, privacy dead, get over it, got nothing to hide, what's your problem? This is stupidity. Privacy is the foundation of freedom. You know, and it, it's a, like, I wrote the big book on transparency, right? I wrote two of them, one, uh, one called The Naked Corporation, again, study in bad time, it was 20 years ago. But we argued that transparency is a new force. And I wrote Radical Openness as well, after I gave uh, a TED talk on, called Radical Openness. So or it was actually about the four principles of a digital age of which openness is one. But, but people confuse that. We're talking about privacy. Corporations, governments have an opportunity and a responsibility to be more open. Individuals do not. Au contraire. You have a responsibility to protect your personal information so that it's not just that it can't be used to manipulate or can't, can't be used against you. The, this is about the autonomy of the individual. You know, because ultimately this, ultimately this data kind of becomes smart data and it gets integrated in with software. You're talking about the ability of large organizations to program us into certain kinds of behavior. So, and the tip of the iceberg on this is the social score in China. You know, you don't pay a parking ticket and for some reason you don't understand your kid doesn't get into a good school. So um, anyways, so that was a bit of a, a side diatribe, but this is a huge issue for me. And blockchain, of course, is at the heart of solving this problem because we can have a self-sovereign identity that's secure and that we own and that moves around with us and that's sweeping up all this transactional data and you can do all this stuff with it. So all this data represents our digital identities. We gotta get this back so that we can manage our own data responsibly for ourselves and the benefit of ourselves and our families. So what are the biggest risks to actually accomplishing that or threats, I should say? Is it uh, heavy handed regulation? Is it uh, these corporations who are actually more powerful than our governments refusing to relinquish that control? How, what, what stops this train? Well, those would be two <laughs> at the top of my list. So the number one problem in terms of blockchain, not just crypto, but blockchain going forward and innovation around this stuff in the surveys that we've done, different countries, is regulation. And, you know, you got Janet Yellen saying that Bitcoin was used mainly for by criminals. That's... Now this is, she's a smart person, but this is lacking knowledge and information, okay? The pejorative term would be ignorance. But is so, it ignorance or is it, is it, is it, uh, I was going to say, is it willful ignorance or is it actually, you know, that they're speaking about it that way maliciously because they actually do understand it? Well, that's um, explanation number B okay. uh, for that, you know, when, um, but sometimes it's just, I don't know, who was it? Uh, one of the late night shows. No, John Oliver had so much fun with the little thing I said. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I was talking, I did this analogy that the reason it's so hard to hack Bitcoin is, is it's a highly processed thing, kind of like a chicken McNugget. And uh, it'd be like turning a chicken McNugget into a chicken. So John Oliver had me, I was on the show and he 
he had so much fun with that. You should just Google it. Uh, yeah, I, I will. I that would be one bleeped up chicken. You know, <laughs> for a horrible thought. It would be writing haunting poetry about the experience, the things I saw. Buck, 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 haw. <laughs> anyway, um, but um, oh, I can't think of his name. It's um, one of these guys that has a show, Rants. Does real rants. Anyway, he just did a thing on um, crypto. Bill Maher. Yeah, Bill Maher. That was absurd, breathtaking in its absurd. stupidity. Uh, absurd. Like somebody isn't. Don't, aren't there grownups over there who can talk to him before he goes and says all this ridiculous stuff that is just so. So anyway, so um, is he willful? Is he threatened by the old paradigm? Probably not. I think he's. Uh, on the other hand, he may well have sponsors. I was going to uh, say, as a writer or a sponsor who uh, was triggered. <laughs> anyway, so that that's a that's a really big problem. Then you got the problem that's tied to that of the leaders of the old paradigm in terms of big corporations. So you think about something like DeFi, which ultimately makes a lot of sense. You got these massive financial institutions. You got a whole body of regulations. You got congresses and governments all around the world that think a certain way about that. You have consumer behavior that is locked into, uh, into that old model. You've got all these intermediaries that exist because of the old model. So this is like, there's a lot of resistance to change. And, and people say to me, oh, Don, is anything really happening with blockchain? Well, the answer is yes. We, we study hundreds of not just pilots, but operational implementations. But the internet of information took a while, well, it was really a decade, 15 years before it really started to take off. But, but that wasn't messing with very fundamental things. And, and, and you could go put up a website even today, go to Spotify. I'm, I know somebody created a company, went to Spotify a week later, they have a full transactional global business that as a rich uh, a data, uh, uh, management environment where they can execute uh, transactions in currency and just all, you can do that in a week. Imagine b implementing something that changes the supply chain. You know, uh, the, uh, Fred Smith, the CEO of uh, FedEx s said to me, I interviewed him in consensus, uh, I guess three years ago. And it was the opening session of consensus of 4,000 people in the audience. He says, we're rebuilding our company in this technology, but the old days, he said, you create a great new system, you put a FedEx logo on it, you go to market, you change the world. Today, you can't do that. He says, we have to change the entire logistics industry. We have to tr change the transportation industry. And we can't do that by ourselves. We need to do it with not just our partners, but our competitors. So for people who say, well, this is going so slow, Oh, it sure doesn't feel like that when you look at crypto markets. But people who say that, yeah, it's going to take a while because unlike the internet of information, we're messing with very fundamental things. Yeah, it's so true. But what happens when those institutions uh, co-opt these technologies and systems and find a way to repurpose them so that they're not cut out? Digital dollar, CB, central bank digital currencies. Sure. Well, um, the final chapter of blockchain revolution, Alex and I went through and we talked about 10 showstoppers 
potential showstoppers. We've been talking about two of them here. Governments are gonna crush this. The incumbents are gonna crush this. And um, we, we, then we went through the discipline of looking at each of the 10 and we put them in bucket number one or bucket number two. Bucket number one is reasons why this is not gonna work and it's a bad idea. Bucket number two was implementation challenges and all 10 ended up in bucket number two. So this is, again, the future is, is not something to be predicted, it's something to be achieved. And this really comes down to people. Maybe it's a good thought to end on. That, um, you know, well, and we said this in blockchain revolution that, that the old internet was great, but it caused a bunch of problems too. We have a fragmentation of public discourse, you know, that ended up with Donald Trump being able to, to do what he did. Um, people followed their own point of view in these little self-reinforcing echo chambers. I think there's many, the purpose of information is not to inform them, it's to uh, give them comfort. for the Confirmation bias. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but once again, the technology, uh, the technology genie has escaped from the bottom. And it was summoned by this anonymous persons or persons with uh, unclear motives at this uncertain period in human history. And it's not gonna solve our problems and it's not gonna create a better world, but it gives us as humans, another kick at the can. Another opportunity as we had with the internet of information to rewrite the economic power grid and the old order of things. But you know, only if we will it. And ultimately this comes down to leadership. And everyone now in this new environment has an opportunity to be a leader, to help bring about in many ways, a kind of new economy and a new civilization. And what an amazing time to be alive. I mean, this pandemic has been awful. And, and the economic costs are staggering. We don't even, the human costs are horrific. But, but we will, the dust will settle. We will come out of that sooner, probably, um, rather than later, if we can think globally and not just think nationally. But that's a punctuation point in the history of something much bigger, the rise of the second era of the digital age. What an unbelievable time to be alive and to get to participate in something like this. It is truly incredible. And I, I know you've got to go. So thank you so much for your time. Where can everybody keep up with you, uh, follow you? And obviously, um, you know, if they're interested in doing business with you. Yeah, um, well, blockchainresearchinstitute.org. You can go contact us there. Um, my, uh, some of my staff just put up uh, a new website, dontapscott.com. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. My my uh, going back to my role as a radical in the early 1970s, um, but also my music. I'm in a band called Men in Suits, and I'm a songwriter. And, um, it's got a whole bunch of a bunch of kind of fun <laughs> stuff in there. And you can contact me through dontapscott.com too. Absolutely amazing. Really, as I said, truly an honor. And I hope that we can do this again sometime because I have about seven hours more of questions that I would love to ask you. So thank you once again for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks.